0: Today, we're in Exodus chapter 2. So I just pray for us. Father, just give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to speak truth and to uh, explain things clearly and soften our hearts, give us good hearts so we can understand your word and we can apply it to our lives and the the seed will bear fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Exodus chapter 2. So last week in chapter 1, we looked at how God blessed the midwives because of their bravery and willingness to send it to Pharaoh at the risk of their own lives. So last week, the midwives, they were told by Pharaoh to take all the male babies and kill them, and they refused. And it's a very interesting story. You can read that for yourselves. I won't read the whole story again. But probably the the key verse in chapter 1 was verse 12, and it says, But the more they, the Egyptians, afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So, we learn that just as plants need sun to grow, well, so too do Christians. And sunlight in the Bible, especially in the parable of the sower, represents the tribulations, the persecution, and temptations that we face daily. So, it could be sickness, like tribulations is hard times, difficult circumstances, sickness, all the financial issues, just general hard times. You know, death in the family, stuff like that. Persecution is suffering for the name of Jesus. And temptation is being drawn away from God by the flesh, the world, and the devil. So in the parable of the sower, the sunshine reveals who the true believers really are. True believers have roots that go down deep into the soil. And they thrive in the sunshine. They thrive in trials, tribulations, persecution, and temptation. But those who are not, well, they don't. Their roots don't go down deep. The sun dries them up and they wither and die. That's uh, what happens to a false convert. We're going to um, just read from verse 22 of chapter 1, which is the, the very last verse in chapter 1. It basically gives the context for what's going to happen. So we're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So that, that's the situation. That's the background for this chapter. Okay, that, that sets the picture. It's not a very good time. So the, they, the midwives got away with it. Pharaoh called them to himself and he said, Hey, what's going on? And they said, uh, the, the Hebrew women are too quick for us. Can't get there in time. You know, have the babies and it's too late. So Pharaoh went to the next step and he ordered his people to kill all the male children. And this is what happens in this particular family. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. This is in the Nile River. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him, what would happen. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days, this is like 40 years later, Okay, so in between uh, verse 10 and verse 11 is 40 years, or roughly 40 years, whatever, however many years it was since he was weaned and um, taken to the palace. It could amount to five years. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, or Jethro, as we know him, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and the cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. So that's the end of chapter 2. Hopefully we'll cover that today. So first of all, some questions about the Exodus. We're just going to be at a bit of a timeline, a bit of background before we dig into the text. So I'm not, don't, don't look it up, but 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1 tells us that the Exodus took place 480 years previous or before Solomon started building the temple. Okay? So that's the timeline. 480 years is when they left Egypt. So between when, when they left Egypt and when Solomon started building the temple, it was 480 years. Now, when they started building the temple, was around about 960 BC. So the Exodus would have been about 1440 BC. Okay? So about roughly one and a half thousand years before Christ. Now, there are two views on how long the people were in Egypt. And... The problem is twofold, and there's a good answer to this, so don't stress about this, all right? It's not a contradiction we can't answer. The problem is twofold. Firstly, there is an apparent contradiction as to how long the time was. Some scriptures say 400 years, some say 430. And secondly, when did the clock start ticking? Did the clock start ticking like that 400 or 430 years when God gave the promise to Abraham? Or did it start when Jacob and his family went down into Egypt? So, they're the two options. So, before I tell you what the answer is, or what I think the answer is, we're going to read the scriptures that have to do with this from the New Testament and the Old, and we can get the background. Okay. So, the first one I'd like you to look up is Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. So, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. So, in this passage, it's where Abraham has this dream. Uh, This vision when God comes down and he accepts the sacrifice Abraham has made and he gives them a a very disturbing message. He says, Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you should go to your fathers in peace. You should be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The main thing there is afflict them four hundred years. Okay, so just keep that in your mind. Um, they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Now turn to Acts chapter seven, verse six, and this is a, a part of Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. And he's giving a a recap of the history of the nation of Israel. And Acts chapter 7, verse 6, verses 6 and 7, I'm going to read, says, But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. That's uh, Midian, of course. And the next one, going back to Genesis, is um, Genesis chapter twenty-one, verses eight to ten. This is about the weaning of Isaac. So remember, when Abraham was eighty-six, he took at Sarah's. It was Sarah's idea, but um, she said to Abraham, "I can't have kids, so you take Hagar and have a child by Hagar." And he had Ishmael. And then another few years later, when he was 100, 25 years after the initial promise, he has Isaac. Now, a period of time after, you know, because you have to nurse the child, and it could be up to five years or even six or more. Sometime later, this is what happened. Verse 8, So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now, keep that in mind. Remember the scoffing, the persecution, all right? That's the main point from that passage. At the time when Isaac was weaned. So now we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 28. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, this is Paul's commentary, or Paul's um, discussing this particular passage. Yeah, the weaning party for Isaac. So Galatians 4, verse 28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bond woman and her son, for the son of the bond woman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So, the persecution started with Ishmael scoffing at Isaac. And two more. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Now, this is where we get the um, 430 years. And there's there's two more verses to look up. So, this one and one more. Uh, It says, Now the sojourn, or the pilgrimage, of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord. A solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And Paul again uh, refers to this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. I'll just read this one. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seeds as are many, but as to one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, okay, this is the important bit in verse 17 that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So the promise he's talking about in the context is the promise God made to Abraham. So the law, which was Mount Sinai, which was the year that they came out of Egypt, was 430 years after God gave the promise to Abraham. All right. That's what Paul says in Galatians. So did the time start when the children of Israel, or Jacob and his family went to Egypt, or did it start when Abraham was given the promise? Well, from my understanding of this and and a simple understanding of Scripture in, in Galatians, it's 430 years from the time when God gave the promise to Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12. He was 75 years old at the time. Now, if one of the problems in saying that the 400 years or 430 years started when Jacob and his family went to Egypt is that there's not enough generations to fill that time space. For example, uh, you've got, well, this is a story. You've got Levi, one of the sons of Jacob. All right. So remember the 12 sons? So Levi and his other brothers are there. And... The Bible tells us in Genesis 6, 421, that Levi died when he was 137 years old. He had a son called Kohath, and he died when he was 133 years old. And his son, Amram, who was Moses' father, died when he was 137 years old. So Moses is the fourth generation to come out of Egypt. So Levi is first, then Kohath, and Amram, and Moses, it's four generations, just like God said to Abraham, after four generations, they will leave Egypt. That was um, Genesis 15. So here we have our four generations. Now, if you do the math, the children of Israel were there for 80 years during Moses' time. 40 years Moses there, 40 years Moses away, before he came back to rescue them. And let's just make this ridiculous assumption that a 137-year-old man and a 133-year-old man had their son on the very last year of their life and their really, really old wife. So if you add up the numbers, you get, and you know, Levi, he would have been in Egypt about 90 years before he died. And yeah, you get 440 years. So it's theoretically possible. But for that to have happened, you know, you would have had God would have had to do these repetitive miracles of causing a 137-year-old man and his really, really old wife to have a son in the last year of their life, basically. To have this, generation. It's not normal. It doesn't really make sense. But So I'm leaving it up to you to make up your own mind. Usually you have your kids fairly young. So I think, my opinion is, because if you read commentaries, you get a mixture of both views. I believe that um, the sojourn or the the pilgrimage starting with the promise in Genesis 12 makes the most sense. So I'm going to go through the timeline. Um, God gives a promise to Abram when he's 75 years old. Okay, so now I'm trying to explain the 400 years versus the 430 years. Okay, so we've dealt with the one issue of when does the time start? Now we're going to deal with the issue of how long is the time? Is it 400 years or 430? So stick with me. I believe the sojourn starting with the promise makes more sense. So it started with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham was 75 years old then. Isaac was born 25 years later when Abraham was 100. Jacob and Esau were born when Isaac was 60 years old. And then Jacob is about 130 years old when he goes to Egypt. So we have um, 25 plus 60 plus 130 years. That's 215 years of this sojourn or 215 years of the 430. That's half before Egypt and then half in. And one of the, the the problems that some people might say about this that there's no way that a population of 70 families let's say 200 people the heads of their families plus their wives and their kids 70 families could go from you know 200 people to up to th- like 3 million people 600,000 army men right um, men of army age fighting age it doesn't seem reasonable but i did some calculations and the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 12, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they, the Egyptians, were in dread of the children of Israel. So my calculation is this. If we assume a generation is 27 years, and they had each family had an average of only seven children, After eight generations, there'll be over three million people. So to put that into perspective, the average Amish family around the world has six to eight children. That's the average for the family. And depending on what country you're in, they can go up to like 10 or 12, the average number of kids per family. And you know that different cultures, they often have lots and lots of kids, you know, in the Middle East. So it's not, an impossible thing to have an average of seven kids per family so now let's come back and look at the 430 years versus the 400 years and it comes back to the, the scoffing and the persecution the 400 years was of persecution and the 430 years is of sojourning or being a pilgrim so when God gave the promise to Abraham Abraham became a pilgrim basically he was a wanderer And so the children of Israel were wandering for 430 years, which is true. okay. But they weren't persecuted all that time. If we go back to the weaning party, which was when Isaac was weaned, well, it was 25 years after Abraham was given the promise, plus the time that he was being breastfed. How long would that be? Well, I did some research. Here's a uh, quote from uh, some Hebrew source. Um, In biblical times, it was a custom to make a joyous feast on the occasion of weaning the child to give thanks to the Almighty that the child had survived the most perilous stage of infancy. This is learned from the feast prepared by Abraham on the occasion of his son's weaning. Genesis 21, eight. In Talmudic times, it was a custom to celebrate the child's weaning at any time from 18 months to 5 years. According to the school of Hillel, the child was weaned at 18 months. According to Rabbi Eliezer, the child may nurse up to 24 months. According to Rabbi Joshua, a child should be allowed to nurse up to the age of five. Samuel, we know, was weaned at three, when he was three years old. First Samuel one twenty-four. Here's um, a couple of, um, in our culture we don't really think of weaning at five years old as being normal, right? Because we're in a Western culture. But this is some facts I found about the age of weaning. Currently, the average worldwide weaning age is four years old. Four years old, okay? In many cultures, children aren't weaned until five to six years of age. Of course, those are cultures where child-led weaning is the norm and society supports it. It's hard to do that in Australia because you get all these looks. You know, what do you got a five-year-old child on your rest for? So it's like, But in a culture where it's supported and it's normal, it's fine. A blog on the same subject. I have friends that nurse their children until they're five or six. Personally, I would not feel comfortable doing it that long, but it's really such a personal relationship between you you and your child that is truly something that no one else but you can put a limit on. And the World Health Organization recommends nursing until at least two years of age and beyond if both parties are agreeable. So a long weaning is not abnormal. So... If there was a five year gap between Isaac being born and when he was weaned, that's add that five years to the twenty-five, and you got thirty years. Okay, so there's your missing thirty years. So the persecution started at the weaning party. So they were wanderers for four hundred and thirty years, they weren't persecuted for the first thirty years, and then the persecution started and that the last four hundred years. Um, that family rivalry that um the flesh versus the spirit persecution was happening from that moment on so that that's um how, that's how i understand it and that's how i reconcile those those different dates because it says clearly the 400 years is always associated with persecution with scorn whereas the 430 years is always associated with sojourning or being a pilgrim so and abraham wasn't persecuted when he first went into the land he had made peace with the people there Okay, so let's get into um, the chapter. So why we did that? Because, so now I've established that Moses' parents, or Moses was the fourth generation um, of the people who went into Egypt. So Levi, his son, his grandson, and Moses was the great-great-grandson of Levi. Okay, so chapter 2 verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So, if you were her, wouldn't you try and hide your baby somewhere else? Remember, the river was a place where... The Egyptians were told to drown the babies. Well, she had faith. She, she I, I believe that God gave her some kind of vision because, in her eyes, her son was a beautiful or good or valuable child. That's what that um that word means. And uh, she is also probably very familiar with what the Bible said about Noah's Ark because here. The word ark, the only other place that is used is with reference to Noah and Noah's ark. Okay, so And the way she built it was very similar with pitch and asphalt inside and out to make it watertight. So the ark is a picture of our deliverance from the judgment to come. So Moses became a picture of deliverance from the judgment to come. Personally for Moses, she was hoping, believing that in the ark he would be saved from Death by drowning, and maybe this is just a you know just a guess, but um, maybe she's thinking that my, maybe my son's the deliverer, and uh, I don't know. But it's just interesting that parallel, um, and why she made an ark and put it in the river. So, uh, an application for us here with our children is that we should ask God to give us a vision for our child or our children. Our children are not ordinary. They're all special to God. They all have a plan in God's kingdom. They all have a a unique, important calling. And ask God to reveal what your child's future is to you so you can help your children become who God wants them to be. Not what you want them to be, but what God wants them to be. So moving on to verse 4. And his sister stood afar off, this is Miriam, to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Now, Josephus tells us that Pharaoh's daughter, um, Thermutus, would you love a name like that? Thermutus? Hello, Thermutus. So Pharaoh's daughter, Thermutus, was his only child. So Pharaoh didn't have an heir to the throne. And verse 5, And her maidens, or her servants, walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And, as that proverb says, God can change the heart of the king Well, God change the heart of a princess. It says that she had compassion on him. Why? We don't know. They were supposed to drown all the Hebrew babies. But th- this particular case, God steps in, he touches this woman's heart, and her heart just goes out in compassion. Uh, then verse 7, Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So, Moses' mother's name is uh, Jochebed. and here is this story, this situation where instead of her baby being drowned in the Nile, she gets paid to raise her own child, and then have him brought up in the, you know, the ultimate private school of the day, you know, where he gets military training, he gets his, uh, training in, in, um, you know, culture, in history, in language, you know. He gets it all. So, this is a great example of where man does something for evil, but God turns it around for good. Romans 8, and 29. And uh, so, Pharaoh meant this command for evil, but God turns around and used it for good. And in the process, just like the promise in Romans 8, 28 and 29, Jochebed grows in her faith and becomes more like Christ. So what do those verses say? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the next time you go through some trying times, just remember that the primary purpose of the sunlight, that is our trials and tribulations, persecution and temptations, is to conform us or make us more like Jesus. It wouldn't have been easy for Jochebed to put her baby in an ark on the Nile. But she did it. She had faith. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means. means drawn out or drew. Verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. So this is again, this 40 years has passed, or roughly 40 years. He's now 40 years old came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. So he's most likely, as I said before, he's become like Pharaoh's son. He's been adopted as his daughter's son. So he's probably the heir to the throne. Okay. It's hard to tell for sure if that was the exact circumstance, but Moses was up there. And Josephus tells us and history tells us that Moses had, had won battles for Pharaoh. He was, you know, right up there. You know, he was trained, he was a leader, he was well respected and well liked in the Egyptian community. He was a military leader. And uh which is another reason why we think that or some people think that he was next in line for the throne. And Acts seven, twenty three to twenty nine gives us some additional insight. This is, again, going back to Stephen's speech to Sanhedrin before he was martyred. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand, but they did not understand. So this is Stephen's commentary, this is Stephen's explanation of this event that's, that we're reading about right now in Exodus chapter 2. And going on in Acts chapter 7, And the next day he appeared to two of them, two Israelites, as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled. And becoming a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So, uh, the reason I read the Acts verses there is it says it came into his heart to visit his brethren. So God is stirring Moses; He's putting into Moses' heart the desire to reach out and to help the Israelite people. Because remember they're being oppressed. Okay, they're being um, they're, they're under bondage. So Moses, his heart's starting to change. God is working in his heart. Moses knew he was an Israelite because it says his brethren. He knew who his his family was. And verse 11, we'll keep going. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So if he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So Moses is at the prime of his life. He's a, he's a successful military leader. He's well-educated. He's strong. He's healthy. He's got this vision from God, this is calling from God to, to deliver his people. And he does it his own way. He does it in his own time. He looks this way and that. but He doesn't look up he doesn't ask god so you want me to be deliverer or how do you want me to do it what's your plan he looked this way and that basically we can make the same mistake there's a principle here we can minister according to need or we can minister according to obedience there's always going to be lots of things that need doing but in this particular point, I believe he should not have intervened. Maybe this Egyptian would have killed this Israelite, you know because it was the way that they it, it's spoken of is quite severe it's a beating a severe beating. but he didn't do it God's way, okay and he was serving in a capacity which was not honoring to God but basically, we have all these opportunities for service around us. But we need to be careful not to look around, look this way and to look that way and say, oh, what, what should I be doing? You know, We need to look up and say, okay, what God, what do you want me to do? Because otherwise we're just going to get burnt out. We're just going to be running around and we're going to get ourselves into trouble for doing the, getting ourselves into the wrong ministry, talking to the wrong people that God doesn't want us to be talking to. We'll get hurt unnecessarily. So just be wise, pray, ask God, where do you want to use me? Today? Where do you want to use me? Um, do I do you want me to talk to this person? Do you want me to witness to this person? And just be wise in, in how we spend our time and how we spend our emotional energy, how we spend our money, how we give things away. And now at the start of Exodus I mentioned that there were several things in Exodus that were types of Christ, like pictures of Christ. Like Joseph was and Isaac was, types of Christ. Well, Moses is also a type of Christ. I'm going to quote by Chuck Smith here. Moses is a type of Christ, and here he becomes a very interesting type of Christ. He came to act in the defense of Israel, thinking that they would know that God had ordained him that he should deliver them. But Israel rejected him the first time he came. During the time of his rejection, he married a Gentile bride, and when he came back again with his Gentile bride, they received him and he became their deliverer. Now, can you see a parallel here? Moses is a very beautiful type of Christ who, when he came the first time to deliver his people, he was rejected by them. And so he has taken a Gentile bride, the church, and one of these days he's going to come back with his Gentile bride, the second coming at the end of the tribula- seven-year tribulation period, and then Israel will recognize him and receive him, and he will be their deliverer. And uh, Stephen makes that point in Acts chapter 7. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And verse 35 in Acts chapter 7 says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And uh, Jesus says something similar about himself. In Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus tells us that the nation of Israel will see him no more until they will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the full verses are this. Luke 13, verse 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a type of Christ. Rejected the first time. Marries a Gentile bride. So Israel was rejected temporarily. Um, God is now working through the church. The Gentile bride, we are a Gentile bride. We're not um, of Israel. But God is going to use Israel again in the tribulation period. That's the last seven years. So verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came out and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then their shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rural or Jethro, as he's called later, Their father, he said, "How is it that you have come so soon today?" And they said, "An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock." So he said to his daughters, "And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." He's got seven daughters who are unmarried, and he thinks, "Ah, we need some men around here. (laughs) Give me some men. (laughs) Bring him in." (laughs) You know, his daughters are being bullied. Okay, his daughters are being the other shepherds come in, and because they're men and they're, they're, the others are the daughters are women, they're probably not as strong, and so they're bullied. Now they have to wait until all the other shepherds have finished watering their flocks in the desert out there, in the wilderness. And then Moses comes along, this military general, you know, and I can imagine he's trained in martial arts and stuff, you know, and he he you know fights them all off and tells them to get lost, and and then waters the sheep for the for the seven daughters because that's his heart. That's that's his heart as a deliverer. You can see that God is already making him into this person. Okay. And verse twenty one, we'll finish with this part. Then Moses was content to live with the man. So this family is not a mighty family. This family is a lowly family. This guy has no sons, just daughters. In that in that culture, it wasn't such a good thing not to have sons. They were bullied. And, worst of all, their occupation was they were shepherds. So Moses has gone from the very top to the very bottom. He's been completely humiliated. But that's why Moses was the most humble man on the earth, because he was humiliated the most. That's how we become humble, by being humiliated. Okay, There's something that happens to us is done to us. So, in Acts we read that Moses was mighty in works, which means he was a military hero. He was full of the wisdom of Egypt. He was schooled in philosophy and astronomy and science, history, language and botany. And yet here he is in a desert with one man and his seven daughters. <laughs> and as we know from Genesis 46:34, in the eyes of Egyptians, shepherds were an abomination. So he is now utterly rejected. He is now, in, as far as the world's eyes, he is at the bottom. He's at the bottom of the social ladder. And yet, what does it say about him? He was content. He was satisfied. This is something that's really, really important for us as an application to finish with. According to Paul in Philippians 4.11, we are to learn or study how to be content. Because if we're not content today... Will never ever be content. If I ask someone if they're content right here, right now, most people would answer, "Oh, not yet." But you know, tomorrow or next month or real soon, you know, soon I'll pay off the house. I'll get that promotion. Um, I'll marry that dream girl. I'll make all that money. I'll go on that holiday. I'll have that child. I'll get that job. I'll be healed from the disease, whatever it might be, and then I'll be happy. Okay, And then I'll be content. Once I get what I want, and then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. But Moses, however, wouldn't have answered that way. For he, through this experience, he's learned the important lesson of contentment. Egypt is a picture of the world. So just like Moses is a picture or type of Jesus, Egypt is a type of picture of the world. And Moses has left it all behind. He's in the desert with his seven daughters and the father, and he's married to one of the daughters. He's a shepherd. He's got nothing. He's poor. So he's left it all behind. I'd just like to finish by reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So in this experience that Moses has gone through, he's drawn closer to God. His relationship with God has become more intimate. He's been refined in the fire and he's come out purified. The work in Moses' heart has started and it's going to take another 40 years in the desert to continue that work of humbling him and making him learn obedience until he's ready to be used and that's the same for us we'll go through those experiences and it's common for people to go through years of being a nobody before god can make them into a somebody and in that time one of the important lessons we need to learn is how to be content and he gave zipporah his daughter to moses and she bore him a son and he called him gershon for he said i've been a stranger in a foreign land so how do we know how to be content by recognizing we're a stranger in a foreign land. That's what Gershom means. And that's what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob said too. I'm just passing through. I'm a pilgrim. And contentment is not hard if you learn to realize what you really long for is heaven. Once we understand we're just strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, that we're not ever going to fit in, that all this stuff is going to pass, then I can enjoy life because I'm not expecting the job, the car, the house, the relationship or the bank account, to do what those things can never do. They can never satisfy. That water, if you drink that water, you'll thirst again. But if we leave it all behind, then our life will be characterized by relaxation and joy. Father, I thank you for your great grace and your mercy. I thank you for the, um, the beautiful story of Moses here and uh, all the lessons we can learn from his life. Lord, there's um, serving according to need or they're serving according to obedience, and help us to serve according to obedience, Lord. Help us to be to only do those things that You want us to do, and not to be sidetracked and to be run down and and to get ourselves into difficult situations because we're running ahead and we're doing things our way according to what we think should be done. And Lord, also help us to learn the lesson of contentment, Lord. Lord, You did a whole lot to Moses to um, to humble him, to bring him down lord to break his pride to make him the most humble person so he could become the greatest leader and lord you do the same thing in our lives you have to break us down break our pride so that we can become usable in your hands because if we think we're something then we're nothing but if we're nothing then you can make us something so father bless us today in jesus name amen